Good morning, everyone. I'd like to ask for some of your attention, some considerations on practice. Um, looking back over the last month, um, I was almost tempted to make a spoof of uh, Akinjana's pet themes for meditation. I could hear sound bites. Buddhism is more than meditation. Meditation is more than mindfulness. Mindfulness is more than attention. There is no present moment. Satipatthanas are more than just meditation techniques. Four channels, body, feeling tone, affect, cognitive dimension. Um, Sati is relationship and so forth. You've heard it. Some of you have heard it. Um, let me start with a little verse. As you are aware, I'm fond of these teachings and delving in there, finding things, trying to translate these things into a meaningful uh, contemporary language, comparing them, juxtaposing them with understandings that uh, come from other fields of learning than just Buddhism. This here is a powerful little verse that occurs six times in the middle-length sayings attributed to various um, or found in six different suttas in the latter part of the middle-length sayings. The verse is uh, called <coughs> Padekarata Gata, which is sometimes translated as <coughs> one single excellent night, and used to be translated one fortunate attachment. So um, both seem slightly enigmatic, but they will not detract from uh, the ba basic gist. Let not one person revive the past or on the future build his hopes, for the past has been left behind and the future has not been reached. Instead, with insight, let him see each presently arisen state. Let him know that, let him know that and be sure of it, invincibly, unshakably. Today the effort must be made, tomorrow death may come, who knows? No bargain with mortality can keep him and his hordes away. But one who dwells thus ardently, relentlessly by day and night, it is he, the peaceful sage has said, who has had a single excellent night. So, a powerful statement. Um, a statement that makes reference to the encouragement of removing our attention from things that lie in the past that we can no longer change and remove our attention from things of the future that have not yet arrived and that we cannot do anything about right now uh, other than attending to the presently arisen state or that which has presently arisen. Well, as you may know, 
Um, there is a notion of now and an operational definition of mindfulness, which has become famous and quasi the gold standard, probably not because the uh, author of that operational definition has intended it to be that way, but yeah, by a fluke of history and the nature of popularization. So that present moment uh, somehow started to appear in the latter, latter, day, latter days of Buddhism. Now that present moment is nowhere there in Buddhism, just to be clear. It is a myth. There is no present moment in Buddhism. Buddhist teachings, wherever you look, does not speak of a present moment. The Abhidhamma does not speak of a present moment. The suttas do not speak of a present moment. The present moment and your attempt to go and live there is a myth, a false myth at that. There are good myths and true myths, by the way, yeah. but this one is a false one. It's important to understand that this myth has something to do with our fantasy and it has something to do with our dreams and our infantile wish to be safe, to be somewhere where things are good and where nothing bad can happen. Now, we like to believe that this is Buddhism, which teaches us if we go away from the past and if we go away from the future, that we can actually find somewhere in between those two, a kind of middle way. You know? And that middle way is the present moment. And if we live there, <coughs> we're safe. Unfortunately, this myth is not true. The Buddhist teaching does not refer to such a present moment. It just refers to dhammas that have presently arisen. The Buddhist, or the Pali word for now, has no significance in our doctrine. Buddhist doctrine does not use the term now with any philosophical meaning. The key term that is conveniently um, adulterated into now, as in be here now, or uh, be in the now, or something like that. The word that Buddhist teaching uses is that which has presently arisen. In other words, Buddhist teaching refers to the stuff that is accessible in our present experience, clearly as construed, it refers to it clearly as sequential, and re it refers to it not in a sort of hypostasized, packaged, metaphysical way. There is no metaphysical teaching of a now as opposed to a past or to a future. Buddhist teaching is quite sober and says, you know, what you experience now is serialized. Time does not occur in fixed moments. It is constructed, it is fluid, it is process-like, and things arise in that present moment due to conditions. So there is nowhere where you can move in, in between past and future. But you can attend to, as this little poem says, to presently arisen state. You can relate to the presently arisen state. You can relate compassionately with affectionate attention. You can relate to that with insight. And this is what is liberating. You're not necessarily safe there. And it's not necessarily always nice there, but it is the only 
It is the only thing you can actually do. It's the only moment when you have freedom. It's the only moment when you can genuinely learn something. It's the only moment when you can genuinely expand your horizons. It's the only moment when you can act. It's the only moment when you can enjoy. It's the only moment where you can participate. But that is not a conveniently delineated moment called now or present moment and something I can achieve and if I can stay in there I'm safe. Uh, That present moment is a highly dynamic, highly fluid, continually changing, constructed type of experience. It is constructed by exterior forces and it is constructed by perception, by consciousness, by need, by degrees of present awareness. It is completely constructed. It's not a thing, it's not a time sequence, but it is a produced, a construed and a fluid dynamic uh, quality. The only way I can be with that present moment, as the Buddhist teaching speaks of it, is by relating. That's why sati, in its crucial function, is a relationship. Sati is essentially my willingness, my capacity and my skill to keep relating to that present moment. Not because it's me having to be good enough to get in there and then stay there, but it's a continual willingness to relate to that which is presently arisen. It keeps arising anew, keeps refreshing, keeps altering, keeps changing. Which brings us, I think, to another important point, and that is uh, when I try to cultivate this mind with the help of contemplative exercises coming from the Buddhist tradition, I'm obviously interested in meditation, the teachings on meditation. I'm interested in meditation objects. I'm interested in meditation themes, that, that which the Buddhist tradition calls kamatanada. The, the ground of meditative work. And on that terrain, we find many of us fascinated with technique. Many of us are interested in honing our particular technique. Buddhist teachings are famous for delivering such techniques. Buddhist teachings do a lot better at that than other religions. I know uh, Jewish tradition is not very famous for delivering meditation techniques. Christian tradition is not very famous. Uh, Islam I have little to say on. Um, And so forth. Other Indian traditions also have something to say on meditation techniques, but it's the Buddhists who are really famous for this one. So Buddhists deliver techniques and Buddhist traditions up to today delivered techniques, which they all claim to be obviously unbroken traditions going right back to the founder, usually. That's what they all claim, whether you ask the, um, the insight lot or whether you ask the Dzogchen lot, they all kind of go back. Even 
preferably before the Buddha, you know, previous Buddhas, so before historical times, nothing to do with manuscripts, textual traditions or so. Our tradition is so intuitive, it is really predating even the historical Buddha. So that's the usual spin. This speaks for the creativity and the aliveness of contemplative traditions. Let's just assume this is a richness and try to take the dogmatic sting out of this. Essentially, any such technique has a role that is indispensable, but also a role that is limited. It has to be understood that relationship does not consist of technique. Techniques may play a role in relationship. Finding out about how your friend is doing, asking the right questions, uh, learning to create a situation in which he or she finds it easier to trust or to relax or to become more clear. This may be something to do with technique. And in the same way, technique in meditation can help a lot. I think techniques are indispensable, to be honest with you. But it would be very limited to say that technique is actually meditation. So if you're preoccupied with honing your technique or reviewing your technique or applying your technique hard to get somewhere, I suggest that you need to reconsider the notion of technique. No technique is going to fix your meditation. No technique is going to make us free. No technique is even going to produce states. There are other skills needed for meditation. Relationship, as meditation, obviously needs other things. It needs attitude. Any relationship consists not just of of your skill to cook well or to ask good questions or to uh, be clearly bounded or to have transparent um, ownership of responsibility or something like that. These are techniques, but no relationship will just consist of those techniques. And meditation does not really consist of such techniques. So another aspect of meditation is certainly attitude. It is the warmth you bring to this, the curiosity to bring to this, the spaciousness you bring to this, the diligence you bring to this, the patience, uh, the the perseverance. These would be attitudinal qualities, the gentleness, So once you combine attitude and technique, the the mix becomes a lot richer. Now I'd like to suggest there is something else in there. Let's call that skill. So we have a technique which says, you know, I'm counting my breath or I'm labeling or I'm practicing metaphrases or I recall my own mortality. And then we have an attitude and that attitude colors the way you hold your practice. It colors, for example, your notion that you need to be, that you are somebody going somewhere and certain things need to happen. If in your meditation practice this is the case, you will probably need to step back and question this. If you still think that you need to have certain specific experiences in your meditation, I would question whether you need to add another dimension to your meditative approach. That other dimension has something to do with skill. And that skill is meeting 
what is not in your blueprint for meditation. It is this, it's a skill of meeting that which somehow the books don't seem to speak of. In other words, it is meeting your mind, engaging your mind, inquiring into the dimensions of your mind, finding out what your mind needs. It's what you do in a relationship. You don't just go in, shake hands, and let rip with your project or with your plan. You kind of you establish a relationship. You say, hello, how are you? Where have you come from? Have you slept well? Where are you staying? Yeah. You establish a relationship. Now, that skill is, is essential in meditation as it is in any business relationship, in any diplomatic relationship, in any friendship. You establish a relationship with what is happening. That is a skill. You don't march in there and foist your technique on what you find there. You establish a relationship and then you find out what it, what it needs, what it takes, what it wants. Your mind has a life of its own. Um, I hope you're agreeing with me on this one after some meditation. And whatever is happening in there will need your skillful response, your attuned response. You can't just go in there and give orders. You can't just go in there and follow along either. Yeah? Yeah. We're not doting necessarily on all our whims and fancies as meditators, but we do want to know what this mind has as a life of its own. We do want to know its images. We do want to know its desires. We do want to know what makes it calm, what makes it anxious, what makes it uh, scattered, what makes it collected. You do want to know all these things, and to find this out requires a skill. And that skill is a relational skill. It has something to do with curiosity, and it has something to do with kindness, it has something to do with patience, and a tolerance that your mind be different from what you expect it to be, for what you think it should be, for what may be baffling, surprising, bewildering to you, what isn't in the books neither in the Buddhist books nor maybe in the books of your own plans for meditation. And your practice will be a juggling of those aspects, attitude, skill and technique. Usually Western folk are quite clear about technique. We have a technological um, affinity. We love knowing structures, techniques, methods, yeah? We believe in that. But uh, sometimes we lack other aspects. The skill to meet what is presently arisen, I'd suggest, is one of the major skills of a meditator. Take it from where it is and turn it into a wholesome direction. Cultivate from there. Refine from there. Some things will need to be strengthened, some things will need to be overcome. That is a relational skill. I would like to encourage you to, when you go home today or when you continue, consider what, what comes to your mind. If you think of your practice in these, under these three headings, this, the heading of technique, the specificity of your kamatanha, you know, is it anapanasati or is it open awareness, is it metta, is it one of the anusati practices, then the attitude in which you engage your 
your practice and your technique. And finally, this, your skills in meeting that which is unforeseen, in meeting that which arises. In other words, you're not doing just your thing, you're actually relating to the mental continuum, to the presently arisen state. I have on other occasions said, uh, I've identified at least four different skills. One of them is the skill of stilling. One of them is the skill of distancing and gaining perspective. One of them is the skill of doing just the opposite, namely inquiring and going into what we have learned to go out of and find distance. Carefully, negotiatedly, respectfully, and courageously going in to the very things that freak us out, that challenge us, that we find bewildering, that we find repulsive. Um, that is a very powerful third type of skill, the skill of inquiry, the skill of engaging with, the skill of entering and uh, probing into. Yeah. And finally, a fourth skill of understanding in bigger universal terms what we have carefully and in studious way investigated in, into our personal uh, contemplative practice. We, learning to understand that, learning to understand the bigger picture, learning to depersonalize what we ha have, the individual steps we have learned about our personal history, the conditioning of this particular mind, learning to see that in universal terms, in terms that speak about freedom, that speak about conditionality, that speak about the arising and the cessation of suffering, the arising and the cessation of personality. Those four skills are quite different skills. And I would suggest that any attempt to reduce meditation to anything smaller than those four skills is likely to miss out on most of Buddhist teaching. So, I like to leave it at that, to read you that verse again. Uh, I'll hang it up on the board afterwards and uh, suggest we practice. Let not a person revive the past or on the future build his hopes, for the past has been left behind and the future has not been reached. Instead, with insight, let him see each presently arisen state. Let her know let her know that and be sure of it, invincibly, unshakably. Today the effort must be made. Tomorrow death may come, who knows? No bargain with mortality can keep him and his hordes away. But one who dwells thus ardently, relentlessly by day, by night, it is she, the peaceful sage has said, who has one fortunate attachment. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.